Good afternoon. Uh, I'm Seth Cropsey, Senior Fellow here at Hudson and uh, Director of Hudson Center for American Sea Power. Welcome. Uh, I'm glad to see such a good turnout today. Um, the conference today, as you know, our subject is the security of Taiwan and the particular issue of its in efforts to build an indigenous submarine. The PRC provided the backdrop for this discussion today here when it, together with Panama, normalized diplomatic relations last week. This ended Taiwan's diplomatic relations with Panama uh, the U.S. State Department correctly objected, noting its opposition to unilateral changes of status in the Taiwan Strait. The PRC also managed similar changes in its diplomatic relations with the West African island nation of San Tome, Sao Tome and Principe last year. So the action in Panama reduces to 20, the number of states that officially recognize Taiwan, which is a democracy with a multi-party multi -party system that has managed several recent peaceful transfers of power and whose gross domestic product exceeds that of Sweden, of Poland, of Austria, and is only slightly less than that of Saudi Arabia. Taiwan is also the United States' 10th largest trading partner, the size of its economy and the strength of its vibrant democratic political institutions entitle it to widespread international diplomatic recognition, not the PRC's relentless bullying. The PRC does not restrict its bullying to the diplomatic sphere. Communist Party leader Xi Jinping continues to build an offensive naval and amphibious fleet that poses a growing danger to Taiwan. He adds yearly to the hundreds of missiles just across the Taiwan Strait from Taiwan. China has, over the centuries, experienced many reverses and setbacks, as well as recoveries. Perhaps Mr. Xi wishes to make the PRC strong again in anticipation of a future serious political and economic setback. This, at least at this point, remains a matter of speculation. What is not speculative is that China's naval and amphibious forces represent a threat to shipping uh, the shipping on which Taiwan relies to send its products to market, to receive essential imports, and to provide security against amphibious assault. After years of discussion with the U.S., which included the George W. Bush administration's 2001 promise to facilitate the sale of eight diesel submarines to Taiwan, Results are still lacking. Taiwan's current submarines are old and in need of constant repair. 
the decision was made to build submarines indigenously by itself. There is no doubt that Taiwan's security requires the stealth and firepower of submarines. The PRC has not renounced the use of force to resolve cross-strait issues, and Taiwan chafes at the PRC's military capabilities and its ongoing efforts to isolate Taiwan. Submarines would add greatly to Taiwan's defensive capabilities and security. So here to discuss this today are three highly respected experts on the large strategic and specific technological issues, some of them very daunting, that face Taiwan as it builds submarines to increase its people's security. Our first speaker will look at the PRC threat and current U.S. fleet dispositions in the West Pacific. Seated immediately to my right, Dr. Craig Hooper has spent more than a decade studying national security issues and identifying strategic gaps and solutions. During his career, he became interested in repairing disconnects between um, health and national security commitments. Dr. Hooper earned his PhD uh, from Harvard and served as a postdoctoral fellow at the James Martin Center for Nonproliferation Studies. Um, you have these descriptions in front of you, and I wish to, I don't want to take up time from our speakers, so I will speak briefly about, uh, about the other two speakers. Um, in the same manner about Dr. Hooper. The next speaker is Dr. Stephen Bryan. Uh, he'll address technological challenges and possible solutions for Taiwan's indigenous submarine program. Dr. Bryan is currently uh, a senior fellow at the American Center for Democracy. He uh, is a senior fellow and board member at Il Nodo di Gordio, the Gordian Knot, a major Italian think tank focused on geopolitics and also of the Taiwan Institute for Economic, Social, and Political Studies. Um, in addition, Dr. Bryan is on the board of directors of the U.S.-Israel Binational Science Foundation. Finally, we'll hear the thoughts of Michael Maza on what the U.S. policy ought to be as Taiwan faces the challenges of the PRC's growing military might. Uh, Michael Mazza is a research fellow in foreign and defense policy, uh, studies at the American University, American Enterprise Institute, where he analyzes U.S. defense policy in the Asia-Pacific region, uh, Chinese military modernization, uh, cross-strait relations, cross-Taiwan strait relations, and Korean Peninsula security. Um, so. Uh, one other note, which I will repeat uh, during the question period, and that is that uh, in the question period, when I recognize you, will you please be certain to identify yourself, that is your name, and the organization that you're connected with, um, and then your question in the form of a question, 
And finally, to whom the question is addressed. <laughs> you know about that. <laughs> I, I, it's a lot to remember, but as I said, I will repeat that. Um, Craig, floor is yours. All right. You want us to come up here? Yeah. Speak, right. Any way you any way you wish. I am. I'm. I'm not used to this fancy seating here, you know, so I will. I'll get up and uh, give you my speech the old-fashioned way. Uh, thanks for having me here, Seth. Appreciate it. Appreciate the opportunity. Um, and uh, just one thing, I won't be discussing too much about the American response uh, and the American disposition. I'll be talking more about uh, uh, the uh, Chinese uh, mainland uh, fleet and the PLAN's disposition and uh, asking a few questions um, uh, for you. So um, I'm a little bit more sanguine about the about the threat. I think in America, little has been more hyped than the military threat from mainland China. And while the threat from mainland China is formidable and growing, uh, I think overhyping the threat is self-defeating. And to some extent, an inflated perception of the threat has led to an underlying sense in certain circles that the threat to Taiwan is insurmountable. And I think that's untrue. Uh, in the maritime domain, the People's Liberation Army Navy, or PLAN, uh, threat to Taiwan is very real, but with a disciplined, strategy-minded application of even modest resources, the uh, PLAN threat uh, to Taiwan is manageable. Uh, submarines and other undersea vehicles may be a viable part of a larger, comprehensive solution. Now, to address the threat um, to Taiwan from the PLAN. Let's first touch on a few overarching themes that we're all in general agreement on. Um, I think, uh, first, we know that mainland China is very attuned to utilizing maritime force uh, and the threat of maritime force as a political tool. And I think the bottom line here is that unless compelled, mainland China will act at a time that best suits mainland China. That's fairly simple. Um, second, the PLAN is modernizing at a rapid rate, adding large combatants and generating a force structure informed by a U.S. operational template. However, mainland China is also growing a still poorly understood low-end force comprised of Coast Guard vessels, maritime militia, and militarized civilian craft. And third, while the PLAN has known anti-submarine warfare deficits, they are preparing to address those deficits. And they are today focused on developing expertise in electronic and cyber to develop an integrated concept of informationalized warfare, all of which makes undersea warfare uh, and surface warfare a little bit harder. So if we accept these uh, modern-day themes from the PLAN, what will the threat look like over the next decade or so? Um, well, uh, we must accept that the PLAN will be increasingly postured to exploit transient weaknesses or missteps. Just as the PLAN exploited the late 80s, early 90s disruption in U.S. relations with the Philippines <laughs> to start appropriating Philippine sea features, the mainland Chinese government will be positioned to exploit similar openings over a far more compressed timeline and at sites farther away from the near abroad. Uh, to develop basing sites maybe in the deep Pacific or move unilaterally when arrivals' interests and forces are occupied elsewhere. Uh, we know that the PLAN is rapidly modernizing. 
we all know that mainland China is rapidly replacing older, less capable combatants with new multi-mission platforms at a rapid rate, and that's expected as the PLAN has for some time made no secret of its desire to evolve from a near-sea force to a hybrid near-sea defense force with far-seas characteristics. And as new assets, the big Type 55 Renhai cruisers and the PLAN's new indigenous carriers enter the fleet, this transformation will be particularly evident. As part of this overarching reinvigoration and expansion, the PLAN is becoming a far more integrated force focused on competing in the high-end warfare space in the electron magnetic spectrum. And that's exciting. It's scary. And there'll be a lot of political pressure to focus on the PLAN's new high-end threats, both in Taiwan and in the United States. It's sexy, high-profile fare that politicians love. It's the prospect of high-profile, high-end war fighting that admirals, prospective sailors, and shipyards love too. Um, but the threat is there. The high-end combatant, PLN combatant fleet is growing. Uh, since 2011, the destroyer fleet has grown by about 20%. The frigate corvette fleet has grown by about 40%. The tank landing ship amphibious transfer dock fleet has grown by about 20%. The number of diesel attack subs has grown by about 10%. Nuclear attack submarine numbers have remained relatively constant. Coastal patrol ship numbers have been constant. And medium landing ship numbers have shrank by about a quarter. And that decline in those platforms will be offset by more carriers and the emergence of larger surface combatants, the cruisers that I mentioned. And while the overall increase in numbers of high-end combatants is impressive in itself, the fleet has not grown disproportionately. <laughs> According to the DOD's <coughs> annual report to Congress, the Chinese fleet has only grown by about 17 units in seven years. It's the build rate that captures the attention. The speed of modernization is impressive. Um, an expected fleet, possibly up to 60 smaller, capable 1,500 to 1,600 ton escorts, i.e. the Type 56 patrol corvette, are being built at a rate that mirrors the 70s era Knox-class frigate build rate when the U.S. commissioned 46 of these simple escorts in five years. So the PLAN fleet is growing in capability and is on the verge of quickly growing in size. Now, well, mainland China does a great job of marketing its high-end capability. We often forget that they're playing from an old U.S. playbook that we all should be ready for. And I'll give you an example. Um, I've been saying for years that we'll see a sudden proliferation of Chinese carriers. And in the 2020s time frame, today's one to two carrier fleet will uh, suddenly become a four or five or maybe a six carrier fleet. And when that happens, everybody in this town will freak out, um, letting loose with another round of hand-wringing, defeatism, maybe even some panic. Uh, it'll be the DF-21 carrier killer anti-access area denial missile scare on steroids. But the U.S. did the same thing to the Soviets. In 1960, the U.S. launched three new supercarriers in one year. Between 1959 and 61, the U.S. completed 17 nuclear subs of eight different classes. And what did this naval built-up help contribute to? Soviet miscalculation, including the Cuban Missile Crisis. So the challenge is to prepare now, both politically and 
militarily to manage well-timed pulses of PLA and growth. With regards to Taiwan security, let's not uh, let this reinvigoration of the high-end planned fleet take our eyes off of the potentially important lower-profile ball. Uh, out of this exciting high-end development, the maritime component that has grown the most has been the low-end portion. The Coast Guard fleet has doubled in the space of six years to 130 ships that are capable of longer-term patrols and operations farther afield. It is a force increasingly well-suited for quarantine and blockade operations capable of stopping and boarding big merchant ships. So if we're looking at the PLAN threat from an undersea domain perspective, we've got a high-end threat and a low-end threat to manage and an overarching background of electromagnetic conflict where command, communications, and intelligence information will be unreliable and difficult, if not outright unsafe, to transmit and receive over longer distances. So let's drill down just a little bit. Uh, ultimately, on the high end, what's the PLAN doing with this buildup? They're developing capital ships. That's it. Um, you know, these new big multi-mission platforms, I think, are going to change the nature of the PLAN, transforming it not just into a blue water force, we all know that, but this transformation raises the prospect that the plan is going to become a task force-oriented Navy with surface combatants shifting their focus from offense to defense of their flagship. And for a submarine, even a very simple submarine, that's great. Why? Uh, it's great because capital ships and flagships are great targets. Large amphibious vessels like the Type 71, um, which is sort of the equivalent of the LPD-17 amphibious assault ship, um, if you're familiar with the U.S. Navy, um, may do a lot to enable, say, an island raid in the Pengus. Um, but if I'm a sub-commander, I'd sure rather focus on a handful of invaluable targets, even if they are well-protected, than a mass of small, relatively low-value tank landing ships. The way that you know conventional submarines are configured today, I'd run out of ammunition if I was confronted with you know an old-school Taiwan um, invasion scenario. And it's worth emphasizing: big targets are politically significant. They matter tactically, they matter strategically, and they're pricey. And over time, the fear of their loss will begin to hoover up a disproportionate number of those pesky gangs of offensive-minded frigates and corvettes that would be unsufferable if I was trying to manage the undersea battle space off Taiwan. Um, escort demand isn't trivial. And to give you an example of the escort demand required by PLA and flagships, a recent voyage of a Type 71 amphibious ship up into the Arctic required three escort combatants, one support ship and potentially a submarine. The same for carriers. Let's say they'll travel with two anti-aircraft DDGs, a few frigates, and maybe an SSN and a support ship. That wholesale shift of the PLAN surface combatant fleet from an undifferentiated mass of small, relatively cheap hunter-killers to a team of surface units whose only reason to ETRA is to protect a higher-value asset entails a fundamental psychological shift that shouldn't be ignored. So while these high-value task forces are certainly a potential threat, they're also multi-mission, so these new carriers and amphibious vessels are also going to be called to do much, much more farther and farther from home, and they'll need escorts to do that. 
So in a relatively short amount of time, any Taiwanese scenario will require significant PLAN forces to be deployed far from the theater to secure critical interests in the Indian Ocean and beyond. So as the PLAN's capital ships grow in number, I mean, in the 2020s, we'll see four to seven carriers. We'll see growth from an existing five and soon to be seven type 71 amphibious assault ships. We'll see those amphibious assault ships get supplemented with a either a Type 75 or a Type 81 big deck amphib. Um, all that high-end growth uh, forces surface combatants escorts into the defensive mission. And in the event of a Taiwan contingency, several of these task forces are again going to be likely to be out of the area, uh, supporting foreign areas of interest and ensuring security of needed war material while endeavoring to deter um, intervention. And the PLN, PLAN has never had to confront that sort of challenge before. So for even a simple submarine of early World War II or post-World War II vintage, never mind one that's optimized for anti-surface ship warfare and a highly contested electromagnetic uh, contest, high-value flagships are wonderful targets. This gives us a very interesting toggle to explore. For the first time, the PLAN has real skin in the game and is going to be fielding units that it will be loath to lose. Cultivating that sphere is something to consider, and I would eagerly await the uproar when Taiwan releases the first periscope photo of a high-value PLAN combatant. And I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about uh, in terms of fear-driven resource depletion. Uh, back during the 1999 East Timor crisis, fear of Indonesia's two 20-year-old Type 209s, which is a old German export model sub, uh, forced coalition forces to go into a defensive crouch. <coughs> and the intervention fleet built around a U.S. cruiser, not even a real capital ship per se, grew to include 13 surface combatants with submarines and P-3s involved in tracking threats and protecting that fleet's flag flagship. So at the high end, we'll have a number of well-protected PLA and task forces centered around amphibious vessels or carriers with multi-spectrum defense in depth. That's a tough nut to crack, but those task forces will be more afraid of the undersea threat than the individual units or surface warfare strike units are today. And then at the low end, we'll have an enormous range of Coast Guard and civilian vessels with modest ASW capabilities probably set to be dedicated to quarantine or blockade contingency. <laughs> and what does that mean for Taiwan? The high-end combatant may be stealth and indigenous area surface surveillance capability would probably, maybe probably range and endurance are important. Uh, for low-end threats, maybe a submarine with a large magazine, uh, smaller weapons, maybe some anti-helicopter defenses and a means to quickly employ capabilities indigenous to the submarine, i.e. the Mark I eyeball of a well-trained captain, to discriminate between large number of surface targets. That'll be important. Now in the undersea domain, mainland China operates a large number of conventional anti-surface warfare focused submarines. Right now about 54 Project 41, Project 39, Russian Kilos and Project 35s are the primary um, adversaries of threats. Five nuclear attack submarines and four ballistic missile submarines round out a submarine force that's expected to grow to 70 or 80 boats over time. 
And again, this force will face the same high-value dilution pro problem. SSNs uh, are likely going to be focused on prosecuting or protecting high-value task forces or possibly supporting SSNs, SSBNs, pardon me. Of conventional subs, most are missile shooters focused on killing surface units. And that makes sense. In a Taiwan scenario, the undersea domain is going to be very complex, possibly with Russian, American, South Korean, Japanese, maybe Australian, maybe even French subs operating nearby. And in that environment, for either side, taking a shot to kill a sub poses a, a fairly risky proposition. And frankly, we don't discuss that risk and have a real idea of the challenges about attribution of undersea attacks uh, as much as we might. Um, similarly, that potential complication has implications for Taiwan. With space at a premium and conventional submarines, does sacrificing magazine space for, say, large sensors specialized for sub-detection and sub-killing make sense? I don't know. But if Taiwan is eager to pursue anti-submarine warfare, it calls for design trade-offs up front that may make the boat less useful in anti-surface warfare. It's part of the strategic discussion that brings us all here today. Would it be more useful to maybe use maritime patrol aircraft in the anti-submarine role? That depends on Taiwan's assessment of their ability to keep their airfields open and maintain control of the relevant airspace. Could this mission be handed to unmanned platforms? Given the level of electronic warfare that we expect, I don't know. Now, outside of the conventional threat, there are a few other things that complicate uh, Taiwan's ability to field an undersea force. Uh, the first is surveillance. The sheer volume of surveillance activities in the region pose a hazard to Taiwan's undersea domain, and the threat from mainland China is complex ranging from semi-nationalized fishing boats that report on ship movements to surveillance satellites to possibly seafloor sensors and unmanned platforms. And Taiwan needs to consider now the challenge of destroying those sensors, degrading them, or, or shutting them down to allow undetected passage or fooling them to show tracks that don't exist. And the other challenge is a little bit more delicate. As long as Taiwan is perceived as a security risk where potential partners cannot have confidence that critical undersea technologies will be protected, Taiwan will have a hard time finding partners in the absence, even in the absence of pressure from mainland China. That threat alone may serve to force Taiwan to get very serious about developing indigenous solutions for undersea technology. And that opportunity to grow from a simple indigenous beginning does exist. Great things can come from very small beginnings. And that's something that China knows well. The Project 35 submarines right now being sold today to client countries are old offshoots of 1950s era Russian Romeo class subs. And the Romeo class, for those of you who don't know, is pretty much derived from German World War II area submarines. Certainly the plans modernized the boats reduced their noise, added computerized functions to things that were previously executed manually. But even though they're old school, I mean, I mean they're not even a teardrop-shaped platform. They're still darn useful. And that's a direct derivation of World War II undersea technology used today. And Taiwan already has access to better undersea technology right now in their fleet today. So I'd encourage them to think about starting from that. So with that, 
I'll close. So. Very helpful. Huh? All right. I'll sit here and do it. Um, <coughs> I'll be brief. Something Hubert Humphrey once said to me, and everybody laughed. <laughs> um, but it seems to me that, that I think this was a very interesting presentation, but a rather technical one. I'm going to try to be more policy-oriented in my discussion, if, I, if, I, if it's possible. Um, you can see three-quarters of Taiwan's submarine fleet in the photograph, which is on the wall, um, because there are only four of them, and three are in the picture. Uh, one, The one in front is a Guppy II-class submarine. It's a decommissioned American submarine that was uh, built in 1945. Uh, it's a museum piece at best. Uh, there are two of those in the Taiwan fleet and neither has any combat value. Behind them, you can see two Svardis, or Swordfish-class submarines that came from uh, the Netherlands. They were built in uh, 1986 and 1987, respectively. Um, they were the only two uh, Svardis submarines sold by the Dutch to, to Taiwan. Taiwan had asked for an additional six or eight, I don't know the exact number, but it was in, in more or less six or eight more. Uh, the Chinese objected to that transfer, and the transfer did not take place. There are only two other Svartis submarines. Are they by, by the way, those submarines were decommissioned. There are two that were in the Dutch fleet, and they were decommissioned in uh, 1994 and 1995. Uh, they were put on a on a boat and sent to Malaysia because they were the Dutch were hoping the Malaysians would buy them. The Malaysians were persuaded, I'm not going to say how, to buy French Scorpene submarines, and uh, consequently those two submarines are still sitting in Malaysia. And there's some significance to that because one of the things that I do want to discuss is, is a, a double problem. The two Svartis submarines are the most capable ones that Taiwan currently has. Uh, as has already been mentioned, they're hard to, to keep up. They need constant repairs. But what they really need is modernization, a full overhaul. And it's probably worthwhile to do that for them. There's no hope of saving those guppies other than using them as a, as a, a lead weight uh, in, at the bottom of the sea. But they have no other use. Uh, but the but the Svartis do have uh, uh, utility. Uh, they can be modernized. But the problem is, if you take them out of the water and you modernize them, which will probably take a year or two, a year and a half, at, at minimum, you have no submarines. Is that simple? Taiwan's <coughs> so, in a kind of trap because it needs submarines desperately. Submarines are are stealth systems, and Anyone who has in mind the kind of ultimate danger to Taiwan, which is a Chinese invasion of, of, of the island, understands that submarines will play a very important role in neutralizing that. If the, but the Chinese will do their best to knock them off. They're going to go looking for them. If there's only two and they're not in good shape, uh, it's not a, a terribly difficult problem. So Taiwan needs many more submarines. They probably need eight to 12. 
that would be my best guess. I, I, I would say they'd even need more, but the difficulty is that they probably can't man more. It, uh, one of the challenges is crews for submarines and training and, and getting people willing to do it. It's not, you know, you, you can persuade me to fly an airplane because I'm a pilot, but you can't persuade me to go in a submarine because I'm afraid of them. Uh, so you have those kinds of problems you just have to deal with. But assuming they can support eight or perhaps 12, the idea of an indigenous program is probably the only practical way that Taiwan is going to get enough submarines uh, to be able to be credible with submarines in the area. <coughs> so where do you get them? If you build them yourself, uh, there's a lot of technology that's required, hull technologies, quieting technology, uh, various kinds of coatings and, and tiles that you need for the surface of the submarine. You need a design. You need a credible design. Uh, the United States, as everyone knows, does not build and does not want to build and will not build, at least as far as I can understand, and that's been for a long time now, will not have anything to do with, with diesel-electric submarines. I think uh, since the nuclear submarine era, it's all nuclear. Now, that doesn't mean that, that a lot of the technology that's on a nuclear submarine can't be used in, in a conventional or diesel-electric submarine. It can. There's no reason why not. And the U.S. has a lot of that technology. But where it's missing stuff is with powertrains, um, battery technology, uh, although we could come up with it if it tried hard enough, and uh, uh, more importantly, air-independent propulsion, AIP, uh, which is a very important technology to sustain operations of a submarine for long periods without having to come back into port. Coming back into port in a, in a crisis situation is a no-no. You don't want to do that because you're going to get destroyed. So you have to stay at sea, and you have to stay under the sea, and you have to stay stealthy, you have to stay quiet, which means you're going to be running on batteries. And what AIP does is let you continue to run on batteries. You can't move very fast, but you can move, and, and it can sustain you for 30 days or even possibly longer. So AIP is a very important technology. Right now, it's primarily a European technology. And the, the main maker is Thyssen in Germany. Now, speaking of Germany, I, I have a, a, a very special gripe that I want to air out today. The Chinese submarines, uh, especially the uh, Type 39, is made up of technology. A lot of it comes from Europe. The powertrain, the engines, the AIP, I believe, come from Germany. MTU supplied the powertrain. And not just a few. They, they supplied 59 sets of, of uh, powertrains to the Chinese government, which is an awful lot. <coughs> an awful lot. So far as I understand, I used to run export controls for the Defense Department when I was young and handsome, and all those things have changed. But, but what hasn't changed is the U.S. has a lot of leverage over exports, especially to China, and especially where U.S. security is involved. And I'm not talking just about Taiwan security. I'm talking about U.S. security, because those submarines are just as dangerous to us 
as they are to Taiwan. They're just as dangerous to Japan as they are to Taiwan. They're just as dangerous to Korea as they are to Taiwan. And they're just as dangerous to any of our other friends, including even the Australians, as they are to Taiwan. And to allow that kind of thing to go on and not oppose it and not take them, you know, take that as a very, by the way, under the EU rules, Europe is not supposed to sell armaments either to China or to Taiwan. But here they are selling very sophisticated equipment to China for their submarine program, creating a danger that shouldn't be there. So that's my complaint. I mean, it's, a, it's important to motivate our side to be proactive in all this in a very serious way because, you know, quite honestly, things are changing in the Pacific, and we know it. China is rising, and we know it. And the faster they get there, the more dangerous. So we want to slow them down. And by transferring lots of technology to China, we're hanging ourselves. Simple as that. And I don't see the point of it. Now, as far as Taiwan goes, Taiwan has the skill base to build a submarine, to build a modern submarine. I don't think that if they really put an effort into it, there's no reason it can't be done. The question is, how long is it going to take? That's a big issue. And the, the ancillary question is, who's going to help them? They should get help. You can't, if you have to invent everything to get there, it's a long road. Too long. Uh, 20 years, you know. If you have help, it's six to eight years. So, basically, where's that help come from? The only country that's willing, I think, to give that help is the United States. And the only country that can benefit most from it is the United States. So it's in our interest to do this. But we need to show absolute leadership. And I haven't seen much of it, to be perfectly honest. I haven't seen any enthusiasm. Now, some of it's history. I mean, the, the last attempt to do a submarine for Taiwan got off, I think, entirely on the wrong track. And you ended up with multi-billion dollar submarine based on an ancient design was because they wanted to take that guppy or actually a barbell class which is a half a step better than the guppy a better hull and they wanted to build a modern platform on it but at a fearsome cost uh, that wasn't a very good idea so it, it got tangled up in politics not only here in the US but also in Taiwan and the result was nothing <laughs> no, you got nothing uh, we have to be more creative, but so does Taiwan. It's not just the United States that has to be creative, but Taiwan has to be creative too. There's too much of a gap, no matter how you slice the cake, between where we are now okay, and where we would be once there's submarines entering into service. Six years, eight years, it's a long time. How do you fill the gap, especially with these two submarines that are kind of reaching that stage where they got to come out of the water and they really have to be modernized. So we have to think of some creative solutions. And I have a bunch of them in my head. Probably half of them aren't viable, but some of them might be. One trick is to go buy those Malaysian ex-Dutch submarines and modernize them. They don't belong to them, but they're just sitting there. If they're good enough to be salvaged, they can be brought even to the United States and modernized. And then no one can complain about anything. 
and then turned over to Taiwan, just like we turn over other ships to Taiwan. That would enable Taiwan to take the two submarines it has out of the water, one at a time, hopefully, and, and follow the same roadmap of, of upgrading because they're more or less the same submarine. And that would be a big deal because then you, you have the potential of doubling the fleet within a couple of years on the cheap, but even if it's not on the cheap, it's hard to get defense contractors in the United States to think cheap. But, but at least you can get the submarines into the water, into the fleet, and buy some time while you build the indigenous submarines. So I think that's one way out of this dilemma, at least partly out of this dilemma. There are other old submarines around, not very old, in fact, that could also have similar work done. And the United States could go after those, too, from Europe, from Japan, from other places. Uh, even the Australians might happily give up their Collins-class submarines because they're not very good. Uh, and they're going to they're going to replace them anyway. But I'm not hoping for that. Uh, so that I think is is where we're where we are. Uh, I believe that this is a solvable problem, but it requires leadership and flexibility. Leadership by the United States and by Taiwan, which has committed to an indigenous submarine, which is a good thing. But also, it requires flexibility because just waiting for the shiny new submarine to show up one day, 10 years from now, is not going to solve your problem in the short term. So you, need to, you, need to, you need to not have all your eggs in one basket. And frankly, there's always a risk in the world of defense equipment where what you build doesn't work. For one, we ask the Australians about it. Uh, they have this nice fleet of Collins-class submarines, which are not good. In fact, they're really bad. And they've caused them nothing but grief, and they, they invested billions in it. And they're not, you know, and they had outside help. They were Swedish-designed submarine, uh, not a Swedish-used submarine. It was a new design that had never been tried before. It hasn't worked out, and it's, and it's been a kind of turkey. Um, not that anything the United States would do would ever come up like that. Of course, not Not that anything Taiwan would do would ever come up like that. But you have to plan for risk. And, and you want to not put all your eggs in one basket. So I think that's the bottom line on this exercise. There, there is a very positive, there's a very positive approach. There's no doubt in my mind, given the scenarios that we know about, that without submarines, Taiwan loses the one stealth system that it has and it loses a huge capacity, which it cannot afford to lose. The trick is, in any th real threat to Taiwan, an invasion threat, not a quarantine, but an invasion threat, where you're going to have, and I was in Taiwan when the last threat materialized in 97, so I know what I'm talking about. I felt it. I didn't see it. I felt it. It's quite frightening. So Taiwan needs to have an ability to defend itself long enough for the United States to be able to assist. And it's not going to be on day one, because no one's going to be sure. Until, it's going to take time. Under the best scenario, it's going to take time. So it's being able to hold its own and to do well, and, to, and actually to have a deterrent, which I think is above all the most important thing, is, is the, the, the real secret to all this. So let's hope that, that this indigenous program does get going and that we find the leadership and, and the flexibility needed to make it happen. Keith, thank you very much.
right. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Seth, and thanks to Hudson for for having me and putting this this together. Um, <coughs> before I jump into U.S. policy options here, I just I wanted to take a step back and and talk a little bit about how Taiwan is thinking through these problems um, by by just talking a little bit about their own QDR, which was released a couple of months ago here. Um, and, and in the QDR, Taiwan listed three priorities for its indigenous defense industry development, which accord with its acquisition needs. And those are shipbuilding, aerospace, and information security. Um, and, and I'll talk about each a little bit. Um, uh, these priorities, I think, make sense in light of the military strategy that the, the QDR summarized. Um, and, and in the QDR, I mean, it's, it's a very short section, but essentially there's, there's two planks. Um, first, Taiwan aims to, and this is a quote, achieve multi-layered defense and support sustainable operations to achieve strategic deterrence. And, and second, you know, the aim of that is to deter Chinese aggression across all possible domains of warfare. Um, and, and should deterrence fail, again, this is a quote, to resist the enemy on the other shore, attack the enemy on the sea, destroy the enemy in the littoral area, and annihilate the enemy on the beachhead. Um, I, I think it's important to... To, to sort of point this out because it suggests the the complicated nature of the challenge that Taiwan faces, um, and, and it serves as a reminder that uh, you know the, the Taiwan's Ministry of National Defense itself is aware that there's no silver bullet here. The the submarine is a priority, but they know it's not going to solve all their problems. Um, you know this this strategy, I think, in turn flows from MND's assessment of of what the PLA Air Force and the PLA Navy are now capable of. Um, the Air Force, they assess, has acquired capabilities to achieve multi-layered firepower, joint air defense, anti-missile operations, and, and even achieve air supremacy west of the First Island Chain, while further threatening our Taiwan's efforts to obtain regional air superiority. And as for the Chinese Navy, it's demonstrated it has increased the ability to conduct nuclear counterstrike, deny access to foreign forces, and blockade Taiwan and its surrounding waters. And so the view from Taiwan is, is really quite dire right now and has, has grown increasingly dire over the years. Um, essentially, MND assesses that there's been a substantial shift in the military balance, um, not just in the, in the Taiwan Strait, but in the, in the wider Western Pacific. That's, that's a significant change. Um, so Taiwan is, is attempting to take steps to, to redress that, that problem. And, and first up, uh, I think, again, the, their number one priority right now is the indigenous defense submarine. Uh, you know, as, as we've heard, I think the case for submarines is, is pretty clear. In a world in which the Chinese Navy can uh, blockade the island and can support an amphibious um, and support an amphibious invasion, and in which China's own ISR capabilities are rapidly advancing, Taiwan needs stealthy platforms that are capable of, of uh, counter-blockade operations and anti-surface warfare. And this is especially important since it may be the case that the U.S. Navy needs to fight its way back into the region. Um, Taiwan submarines may well be able to carry on the fight longer than their, their surface fleet, um, helping to buy time until foreign forces can intervene, if it should come to that. And I think from the U.S. perspective, uh, Taiwan's submarine program um, advances American strategic interests as well. Uh, Anti-submarine warfare in the past has not been a particular strength of the Chinese Navy. Um, and, and ASW assets that come to be focused on Taiwanese subs will, will not necessarily be focused on U.S. subs or Japanese subs or Australian subs or others. Um, moreover, if, if Taiwan's 
subs can take responsibility for, for breaking a blockade or, or securing the strait. Um, it could free up U.S. submarines to, to focus on other missions. Um, so, you know, I, I think that the case, again, for, for Taiwanese subs is clear. I think it's also clear at this point that, that the IDS program, the Indigenous Defense Submarine Program, is happening. Uh, for a long time, it was theoretical. Um, for a long time, it, I think it was a big question mark. Um, but the, the Tsai administration has made clear it's moving forward. And, um, you know, I think we're sort of we're past decision point. Um, it, they're going to pursue this one way or the other. And so, you know, what should the United States do here? Uh, I think there's two simultaneous lines of effort to pursue. Um, now, back during the Bush administration, one of the, the, the courses that we, we explored was for the United States essentially to act as an intermediary, to, 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 to essentially buy a submarine from a European producer and then, and then transfer it to Taiwan. Um, and, and I don't know the details here, but my understanding is we were actually quite close to a deal with, with Spain, I believe, which, which fell apart for a number of reasons. You know, China has much more influence in, in Europe than it did during the Bush administration. This is not an easier task to pursue, but, you know, we have a new president, a new administration, um, uh, which has a changing relationship with Europe and China. I, I certainly think it's worth, worth having those conversations again. I don't have high hopes for that, um, but... But, you know, on the off chance that we find something that's workable, it's a way of getting Taiwan something that's potentially more affordable more quickly. Um, and doing that doesn't necessarily mean you, you abandon the indigenous defense submarine. I think, I think it's important for Taiwan to have, have that indigenous capability because, uh, as it's learned over the past couple of decades, the international community, including the United States, has not always been a reliable arms supplier. Um, so that, that brings me to the, the second, second piece here, which is I think we just need to throw open the doors to U.S. participation in the program. So whether that means uh, providing licenses to, to U.S. companies simply to provide expertise, to assist in design, um, to provide combat systems or systems integration, um, to provide munitions, which we already provide for, for Taiwan subs. I mean, essentially, what, whatever aid the United States can provide, I would argue we, we should be providing. Um, and as with my first point, I think we should be talking to the Japanese in particular and perhaps the Australians about whether they have any expertise that, that they might be willing to provide. Um, again, they'll be tentative to do so for obvious reasons, um, but if the United States is prepared to support that and, and provide cover with the Chinese, uh, again, it, it's, it's, I think their conversation's worth having, not that um, the potential is good, but it, we should at least be, be exploring the possibility. We have a prime minister in Japan who is sort of the most pro-Taiwan prime minister there, there's been in quite a few years, is quite hawkish when it comes to China, um, is interested in improving Japan-Taiwan ties. You know, let, let's see what's in the realm of the possible. Um, you know, the, the second priority that, that the QDR lists is a next-generation air platform. And I think it's become clear that they're going to issue a request for the, the F-35. Um, you know, from a capability standpoint, I, I think there's a good, good case. The Stovall variant, the B version, um, would allow Taiwan to continue flying in the event of strikes on airfields, um, and its, its stealthiness would allow it to continue flying in a, in a highly contested air environment. It would give Taiwan additional strike options, which uh, folks don't like to talk about, but uh, would, would have that capability. Um, 
That being said, the U.S. tied itself in knots over the F-16CD decision, um, which, in my opinion, regrettably, it never sold to Taiwan. Cost here is a huge issue. Uh, the IDS is going to eat up a big big piece of, of Taiwan's defense budget, uh, which Taiwan is, is increasing to its credit. Uh, I think it could increase it at a faster rate. Um, but without really significant increases in defense spending, I think you worry about the ID, IDS and the F-35 just eating up too much of that budget and taking money away from other important priorities. Um, so, yeah, I don't see the F-35 sale happening. Uh, circumstances could change. Again, we have a, a new administration here in town. Uh, I'd be happy to be proven wrong here. Um, but, you know, again, so Taiwan has this priority of, of a next-generation aircraft improving its indigenous aerospace uh, capabilities. What should the United States be doing? First, again, don't dismiss the F-35 out of hand. Let's take a hard look at it. Um, but beyond that, I would say, as with the submarine program, we should be allowing for robust U.S. participation in Taiwan's indigenous jet trainer program, if, if Taiwan would welcome that, as I imagine they would. Uh, we have experience doing this. Lockheed helped design the indigenous def defense fighter in the, the late 80s and early 90s. Um, there's no reason we can't, we can't do so again. Um, Rupert Hammond Chambers of the U.S.-Taiwan Business Council has argued that across the board, the United States should welcome Taiwan as a Tier 2 contributor to defense programs. Um, I think aerospace is a, in particular is, is, a, is a potentially a good fit there. Um, again, this would help support Taiwan's own aerospace goals uh, while helping it um, um, field systems at a lower cost, perhaps getting it that access to a next generation fighter it, it, it says it needs. And finally, on, on UAVs, Taiwan has a pretty robust program already. I think the United States should be uh, permitting Taiwan to, to put whatever munitions that we, we sell to Taiwan on it, um, Hellfires in particular. And we should be willing to sell Taiwan our own UAVs if, if that's something that, that meets their needs. Um, and then the, the, the final priority, which I won't talk much about, is information security. I can get technical quickly, and uh, honestly, I, I'm not capable of talking about it. Um, <laughs> But, but I will say this, uh, Taiwan is essentially on the front line um, uh, in the contest in cyberspace that's happening between the U.S. and its partners on the one hand and, and China on the other. Um, and, and this is perhaps a rare case uh, where we may have more to learn from Taiwan than they have to learn from us. And so I think there needs to be sort of open two-way sharing of information and experience and capabilities where appropriate. Um, you know, I think that serves as a potent reminder that this is this is not a patron-client relationship. At its best, the relationship is symbiotic. What what benefits one benefits the other. Um, or as my colleague Dan Blumenthal put it uh, in testimony to Congress last week, Taiwan is a partner, not a problem. It's often treated as a problem. Um, you know, ensuring that Taiwan has the capabilities it it needs most, which I would argue we have not been doing in recent years. Um, is to advance American security interests. Um, so I would say we should we should advance those interests, uh, and the, the submarine program is a is a pretty good place to start. Um, I'll, I'll comment quickly on Panama uh, since you, you brought that up. You know I think there are a variety of steps the United States could take here to respond. Um, you know it's good that we recognize that we don't welcome unilateral changes to the status quo in the Taiwan Strait, and that's what this was. Uh, but there's been no there's been no action on our part. So. Um, Certainly, again, you know, it would be great if we were to, to finally release an arms package. I'm not sure what the holdup is. Um, if that's, that's not possible, or if we can't, we can't move that along, I think uh, 
again, an announcement from the Defense Department that we're prepared to, to support and engage in the IDEAS program would be, would be a great way to, to signal uh, displeasure with China and, and also, you know, our, our own support for a U.S. US security partner. Um, beyond that, you know, we could disinvite China from, from RIMPAC. We could invite Taiwan to RIMPAC, engage in our own you know, just bilateral exercises. And there are, there are diplomatic steps we could take as well, um, eliminate, eliminating uh, limitations on you know, U.S. state and Defense Department officials traveling to, to Taiwan. Another phone call between yeah, you don't want to tie Taiwan's defense needs to the, the political behavior of China. In other words, Taiwan has defense needs, period. And it's risky if you get into that game because you'll get into a, a salami tactic by the Chinese and you'll never get out of it. And Taiwan will suffer accordingly. So I, be careful there, if you don't mind me saying that. Don't mind at all. Um, because I, I think we're getting that now with, with the Korean situation where the Chinese have shown up and said, all you have to do is stop having military exercises with South Korea, and maybe we'll talk to the North Koreans about their nuclear program, ha ha. I mean, that, that kind of nonsense uh, doesn't work, it shouldn't work. We should stay away from that. If we need to have military exercises with South Korea, we need to have military exercises with South Korea, full stop. And the same thing is true of Taiwan. If Taiwan needs defense help from the United States, we should be prepared to provide the defense help, full stop, and, and not let that be leveraged because once they start leveraging it, you're a dead duck. I, I, I had gotten to my last Sorry, point. Sorry, I, no, no, I, just, I, I so put it in. I shouldn't have done it. <coughs> I felt that strongly about that. I wanted to say it. So, Well, Mike, Steve, Craig, thank you for excellent presentations. Um, we'll move ahead to the question period here. Uh, and I'll give an example of um, how I would like to see the questions um, asked, um, but I can't give an example of how I'd like to see them answered. <laughs> so my name is Seth Cropsey. Um, I'm with Hudson Institute, and I have a question for Craig Hooper. Uh, and that question is, can you tell us anything about something about... Um, the U.S. fleet in the West Pacific today. Sure. And have there been any significant or interesting changes since the new administration took office? Well, uh, let's look over the next 10 years, first of all. I think you're going to see a shift where you may see a more deterrence-oriented forward-based fleet. So you may have more resources in the region than we do now that are combat ready, that are forward postured, ready to go. They may not be uh, something that will um, survive long. They may only be able to shoot, inflict some pain, and get out. But at least there'll be, I think you'll see a slow progression towards a stronger deterrence force. Um, in terms of what's happened recently after the administration, <laughs> uh, change. It's it's difficult. Um, you know, you've <coughs> seen some multi-carrier operations, uh, larger task groups 
collaboratively moving around with allies, uh, uh, but you've also seen uh, some steps that might um, might cause Taiwan a little bit of anxiety. Um, you know, where you've seen an articulated request for Act Fleet Commander to be sent to pasture. Um, you know, so I think uh, I think there's there's some um, uh, there's some ambiguity in signaling that's going on in the Pacific. There's some things that give certainly may give China some concern, although maybe those you know they can look at a two carrier task group and be like, oh, I'm a little worried about this, but then console themselves that it's targeted maybe primarily at North Korea, not. Uh, not China, but still, mm-hmm. you're seeing some worrying signals with some conciliatory signals. So, still playing out, I think. And until we get a Secretary of the Navy and some leadership there, we won't be able to have a really firm handle on where we're going in this administration. Thank you. All right, uh, move up here so I can see. <coughs> Questions? I see a question over here, and the gentleman in the blue shirt. Hi, uh, my name is Chris Lee. I'm an intern at the East-West Center, and I really wanted to ask really quickly about, uh, to the entire panel, regarding uh, Chinese, mainland Chinese anti-submarine capability. Um, if the Taiwan needs to go alone and take around six to eight years in developing the capability, isn't it more likely that the Chinese get fat, uh, acquire effective anti-submarine warfare capability a lot faster than Taiwanese developing indigenous submarine program. Thank you. Well, uh, yes, you'll respond to the threat as you see it, but still, um, ASW is a tricky science, and the benefit. Um, rests largely with the threat, all right? So um, what you're doing is you're forcing more resources to go towards ASW, all right? And you can't discount that as a, you know, uh, trying to uh, encourage greater resource expenditure on ASW keeps, you know, keeps mainland China from maybe looking at other things. So, yeah, it, it will develop a threat, but and mainland China will respond to it. But still, submarines are um, you know are a threat that has to be dealt with either way. There's no magic bullet. Yeah, there's simply no magic bullet uh, with ASW or or submarines either. But but the the balance of uh, look, no one would build submarines if they thought they were going to get detected and blown out of the water, right? We would stop. Russians would stop, Chinese, everyone would think of something else to do. So the fact is that, that submarines still have a considerable advantage because of their stealthiness. And, of course, there's always continuous improvements in, in, in sound protection, uh, radar protection, which is also important in littoral waters, um, uh, changing from the traditional periscopes to electronic ones, which another gives you another way to stay hidden. So all those things, look, the, the U.S. has lots of problems with diesel-electric submarines. We don't have any of our own, but we have lots of problems tracking them, staying on top of them. It's not easy. 
not easy at all. So I think that the answer, you were really saying, aren't they going to build the pig in a poke here because you get the submarine done and then it's compromised right from day one? The answer is no. I think the answer is no. And, and we're not even addressing the prospect of technological jump to unmanned undersea platforms. That's Incredibly right. Incredibly difficult. Exactly I mean, right. you can use the, uh, you know, the African example of, you know, suddenly everyone has cell phones. You know, there's, a, there's an opportunity here uh, to jump, you know, forego this manned submarine business and try to jump into the unmanned. Uh, I'm I, being optimistic, being but, optimistic. you know. But, uh, but, <laughs> but certainly unmanned, unmanned platforms are, are, are part of the future scenario. <coughs> they are in the air and, and even on the surface. So I think we're going to see them all over the place. Nothing to add. Gentleman here. Hi, uh, my name is Garrett Vanderwees. I'm now with George Mason University. Excellent uh, discussion and presentations, and good to see you again, Steve. We saw each other last year during the uh, election campaign when we were observers. Uh, you all made excellent points on China's military growth, the expansion of the Navy. And of course, we focused on Taiwan, and you had a number of excellent points on there. But if we look at it in the broader context, there are a lot of other countries, uh, India sitting right next to me, uh, Japan, uh, Malaysia, Indonesia, that are concerned about precisely the same thing, the expansion of China's military and how they are using uh, their force for projection, particularly the South China Sea. Can you say something, any of you, uh, on uh, what they feel about that? Well, I'll start off and say that, that <coughs> India has a very aggressive program of submarine building um, and modern submarines at that, and they're building lots of other ASW systems, uh, the, um, they're building, they're building surveillance aircraft, or buying them, if not building them. Um, and they're very energetic. Doesn't mean it's not a big problem. Look at the number of submarines that the Chinese have, just as an example. But it's clear that there's a competition. And it's not just Pakistan that's the problem, but it's India. I mean, it's China that's the, the, the real, I think, the major strategic issue for the long term. Anyone else? I mean, there's, I think I got this a, a little bit in talking about the, the number of different countries which would be operating submarines in the event of a um, you know, crisis. But in Southeast Asia in particular, we're seeing uh, submarine proliferation, I, th I would argue, lo largely but not entirely driven by, by China. So um, Vietnam just bought you know, from Russia, I believe, six uh, kilo class. Um, Malaysia is buying new subs. Singapore is buying new subs. Indonesia wants them. Thailand wants them and wants to buy Chinese subs. Um, uh, I, that's not driven by, by Chinese security threats. Um, and so, yeah, look, countries across the region are responding in a similar way to Taiwan. Uh, fortunately for those other countries, they have numerous options for, for procuring and, and doing so in a perhaps more affordable way. Japan is building new submarines, mm -hmm. new design, very good ones. I think the challenge here is to try and uh, avoid being taken on one by one piecemeal. How do you weld a durable multinational 
uh, alliance against aggression in that area. Um, I'd love to see submarines be a piece of this, as sort of a NATO round for the Pacific. But, uh, you know, I think that we're a long way from that. I mean, imagine a scenario in which South Korea, Japan, and Taiwan are, to some extent, coordinating their submarine patrols. Oh, oh, my goodness. Right? It's the dream. Oh. Hi, my name is Paul Huang from the uh, Epoch Time newspaper. I've, I find um, Steve's description about the, the raise a point about Europeans countries selling China the submarine technology and component very interesting. I wonder if you can um, elaborate more on this. Like what you mentioned, they, they sold 59 AIP systems to China. Which yeah. country did the selling, and what 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 have been the worst offenders? And maybe is, is there anything United States can do to somehow punish those European countries, especially if they are NATO allies? Well, the first thing, you know, before you start punishing is to tell them they shouldn't do it. Um, I mean, it's, it's against our strategic interests, and it's harmful to the United States. So that message, apparently, and I, you know, I don't know. Maybe, maybe under, you know, quietly the United States protested. I have no idea, and I don't want to say that we did or didn't. But it sure looks like we didn't. Um, and it, there have been uh, newspaper articles uh, about the purchase of these uh, this equipment, especially the MTU. The powertrain, the engines, and the diesel engines, and the powertrains for the for the Chinese submarines. There's no secret about that; it's well known. And there's not a peep or a boo out of Washington about it, because we're coddling the Chinese for all sorts of reasons, and and we and we are to a certain extent not prepared to deal with the Chinese, which is another issue that I think is true. But at the same time, we we're certainly prepared to deal with the Germans. Uh, I know Mr. Trump's had his difficulties with Mrs. Merkel, but but putting that aside, I mean this is a, this is a concrete, specific issue that should be addressed, and and the U.S. government has a responsibility to address it for sure. Export controls. Well, I used to do that for a living, uh, so I know a little bit about export controls. I was uh, the founder of DITSA, the Defense Technology Security Administration, and in the Pentagon in the 80s, founded in 85, still there. Uh, I'm not, but it is. And uh, we ran the counter-Soviet stuff at that time. We did a pretty good job, I think. Uh, and export controls, the export control system has largely broken down because there's no more COCOM uh, has disappeared. Uh, the Vossenar, the Vossenar arrangement is not an arrangement, it's a joke. Um, it doesn't have any effectiveness. But the U.S. still has considerable leverage because if MTU wants to sell things in the United States, better think again. You know, There's ways to, to get the attention of the Germans, and we should be getting their attention on these and legitimate strategic issues. I, you don't want to bother them with small stuff, but big stuff that's, that's definitely strategic and harmful, they should know better in the first place and we should demand that they stop that kind of cooperation. They're not alone in Europe. I know there are others. But, but that one is, is a well-known, well-documented, public piece of knowledge. So there's 
No escaping it. Sure. Uh, thank you. Uh, I'm Satoshi Steve Nishihata, a correspondent of, of Japanese opinion magazine, The Liberty, and the Happy Science Group, the Human Human Happiness Research Institute in Japan, uh, which has uh, which was an advisor to Prime Minister Abe uh, regarding abenomics and Japanese foreign policy, uh, defense policy. Um, thank you for your insightful presentation and discussion. And I have been wondering uh, two things. The, um, a lot of countries in Asia, including Japan, uh, especially Prime Minister Abe, are, have, have been concern, concerned about the uh, Chinese military expansion uh, and uh, disregarding international norm in uh, regarding South, South, China, South China Sea. And uh, I wonder the purpose of China's strategy. Uh, chi China seems to have, have a very, very long strategy, in, especially in he hegemony in, in Asia. And I also wonder uh, Trump's uh, policy regarding Taiwan. He, he, recently, he has changed his policy uh, in, I think, in, in, uh, in China and, and Taiwan. And I have, I have some Chinese friends, and they are concerned about his, his changing policy uh, towards Taiwan. So uh, I'd like to know your opinions about those things. Thank you. When, when everybody's ducking. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you have no strategy. Uh, the uh, team with the strategy well, has the advantage. Uh, it started out when he was he was uh, president-elect, and of course, in the famous phone call. Uh, to, and then it, it seemed to get twisted up with other need to persuade the Chinese to be helpful, especially with North Korea, which is the immediate crisis. And so the whatever our Taiwan policy is, if we have one, which we're not too sure about, uh, it, it's obviously taken a back seat to these immediate this immediate crisis because, look, the North Korean thing is very serious. Um, and there's a lot at stake. I think, though, the administration has to commit to a program for the program, not a policy, but a program for Taiwan, and then support it without blinking, without blinking, meaning we have to support it all the way and, and not sell it off for some political deal or some uh, diversion that's of no interest to anybody. We, we have to stay with the program. So first is to commit to a program, and Taiwan has a lot of needs, as you have very well said. I think it was a good presentation to give you the, the air and the, and, and the information problems and, and the, 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 the intelligence. There's intelligence issues. There's command coordination issues. There's lots of things that need attention. The submarines is pretty much at the top of the list. So, so those things we need to commit to. And what I'd like to see from the administration is a commitment to do it. That's all. Simple as that. And there's no reason why right now that commitment can't be given. You know, just on top of that, and then to get to your first question as well, you know, I think uh, I, I agree with everything that Steve said. I think within the administration that the personnel that are in place, and obviously we're still waiting on quite, quite, a, quite a lot of people um, to, to enter government, the personnel who are in place, I think, are, are generally, generally understand Taiwan's importance and are 
amenable to to improving the relationship in a variety of ways, especially on the security front. Um, I, I think it, it unfortunately and, and incorrectly has sort of been held hostage to, to the North Korea issue in particular. Right. Um, regarding Chinese strategy, I think, I mean, I think the point you make is correct. I think if you, you look at the types of, you know, the, the ways in which they're modernizing their military and the ways in which they're using it, um, and, and also when you factor in things like OBOR, the One Belt, One Road in, uh, initiative, uh, I think, you know, we're very much looking at a China which is seeking to, uh, in its mind, restore its place atop the Asian hierarchy, uh, which wants to uh, diminish U.S. influence in the region, which wants an ability in the event of a crisis to, to keep U.S. forces out of the region. Um, and, and I think, you know, OBOR is suggestive of, of a China which has extra, extra regional ambitions as well. Um, who, who perhaps envisions itself eventually displacing the United States um, globally. I see a hand in the back here, and a person with it. Yes. My name is Michael Yehuda, and I'm, I think it's called, a guest or visiting scholar at uh, uh, GW. Now, I recently heard and read that um, the uh, DPP government in Taiwan had been very critical of the military that they have in inherited, the personnel, claiming that uh, they uh, are, are really more, more favorable to seeking to make contacts with the PRC and find ways as it were to mitigate the, uh, the conflict by reaching out to China. How far is that true? And does it mean that really you're expecting to see major changes of personnel at the highest levels of the military in Taiwan and people who will take, if you like, a more proactive approach along the lines perhaps that you have suggested? Uh, you know, I, I'd, say, I'd say two things. Um, you, know, you know, one is it, it, it's true that in the, the past, <coughs> um, you know, Taiwan's military was uh, tended to be dominated by, populated by members of the, the KMT. Um, that's less true than it once was, but there, you know, there politically there is still that. Um, I don't want to use the word faction, but I think it's true that there's still the. The KMT has a stronger presence um, in the military than the, the DPP does. Um, that being said, my you know my own based on my own and this is anecdotal my own observations and um, experiences dealing with the Taiwanese military now in both KMT and, and DPP administrations doesn't really uh, bear out uh, what you're what you're saying. Uh, you know the, my, again this personal experience the folks that I, I've met with and have come to know are, are pretty. Uh, pretty realistic about the Chinese threat and um, dedicated themselves to, to dealing with it. Up here in the front. <laughs> Thank you. John Zan with CTI TV of Taiwan. I have a question for all uh, panelists. Now, you all have uh, said that what the U.S. should do to help Taiwan, particularly with the uh, submarine program. But how likely will 
this administration um, do this? Um, can Taiwan be successful in this program without a uh, very active U.S. Uh, support? Thank you. Uh, well, uh, I think it's too early to tell with this administration. Uh, can Taiwan be successful? Uh, I, I think yes, if it recalibrates its desires. Um, I think, um, for example, a, a mini-sub uh, might be a very doable uh, project that could be done quickly. Uh, it would be able to develop uh, a cadre of experienced workers. You could develop methodologies that would help you with larger projects. <laughs> and you would quickly uh, get operational units that would be a deterrent. It may not be the most glamorous type of platform. You may not be able to do all the fun things that all of your neighbors are doing, but you'd have a deterrent that you could use to build to greater uh, and more effective platforms. So uh, I think, yes, it could be successful if there's a recalibration as to, uh, as to what, what Taiwan aspires to. I, I, I agree very much on many submarines because in 96 I proposed exactly that for, as for a project for Taiwan and they weren't interested at all in it. Um, <laughs> it's a little bit of history um, because it wasn't a big submarine. And there's always that kind of dilemma. Uh, but they're not mutually exclusive projects. Let's start there. The mini, the mini submarine, um, which is nothing but a smaller submarine, diesel electric still, uh, could be a very effective tool and very helpful. I agree 100%. Does it mean preclude uh, a large submarine? Absolutely not. If you have the money and the time, I think the only real thing about the American participation, which was part of your question, that's so important is it would speed up, significantly speed up the process of getting the submarines built. Without the U.S., it's going to take longer. It has to take longer because Taiwan's going to have to struggle to find the resources, to find the help, uh, to do things somewhat under the table, to try and work off designs they know about. You know, you can go on and on about this, but it, and then to dig out the parts because you have to buy the parts. It, it makes it a much tougher project, and, and I think takes much longer, and it's more risky. So the best solution is for the U.S., and I do believe the, the U.S. will come around and help. I, I'm, I'm very optimistic about that. Um, I think once the administration understands fully the implications and the importance of Taiwan being able to defend itself and how important that is to our security, I don't think they'll hesitate. Yeah, I'll just the, the first part of your question. Um, so I've retired from making predictions about what <laughs> I'm going to do. Um, I just uh, made a fool of myself too many times. Um, I will say what, personnel appointments are going to be important. I think once we get, you know, the assistant secretaries at defense and, and state, you'll at least have more institutional impetus to do some of these things, depending on who, who those people end up being. Um, I, I would also say... I think it's important, you know, this is not just a new president, but a, you know, a, a new type of president, right, a new type of administration. And I think, I think Taiwan perhaps can think creatively about how it engages this administration 
more broadly. So certainly it wants to continue to, to, to lobby the administration and its friends in Congress for the defense articles it needs. Um, uh, but there may, in a way, be a, a bank shot approach to this. So, you know, we know that the Secretary of Commerce, Wilbur Ross, is, is quite an important person in this administration. Um, uh, we know that they've, they've announced that they're eager to do bilateral trade deals. Uh, you know, if, if you look at, at Taiwan, Taiwan is actually a great candidate for a bilateral trade negotiation. And, and I wonder if an early focus on some of those economic and trade issues, um, we have to focus on the benefits that a tighter relationship can bring to the United States and U.S. workers, is a way for Taiwan to essentially get itself into to good graces with the administration. And that could to sort of give impetus to some of the <coughs> other priorities that Taiwan has. Do we have any other questions? Well, we're just about two minutes away from 1.30. Uh, I'd like to thank you all for joining us this afternoon. I'd like to thank our panelists especially for excellent presentations and answers to um, some good questions. And uh, please watch this space, as we say, because there will be more uh, conferences on this subject um, uh, and related subjects uh, that uh, concern the United States' relationship with um, our partner, Taiwan. Thank you very much. Yep.